What's up, guys? I am your host, Kayla Taylor, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season two, episode 27. And like I say every week, thank you to those of you who tuned into last week's episode, whether you listened, shared it on your social medias, gave me feedback. It's all appreciated. And I don't want to waste any more time because I'm trying something new with my podcast. So I'm super excited to be doing this. And actually, I just finished my notes not that long ago. I spent a lot of time on this week's episode. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode because I worked really, really hard on it. So let's get right into things. So I want to start off by talking about the Fear Street trilogy. So for those of you who don't know, Fear Street is based off of this book series by R.L. Stein, I think. And so Netflix adapted it and put the movies out like one week after each other as a part of what they call the Fear Street trilogy. So a little bit about the movies for those of you who haven't seen the movies yet or aren't familiar with the books either. It's about a town that was cursed a long time ago and every few months one person from the town which is called Shadyside gets possessed by the devil and goes on a killing spree and like I said it happens every few months or so and the town outside of like random people in the town being possessed the town is just cursed bad things happen there the people that live in the town are just cursed with bad luck in general. So as you watch each movie, it gives you a little bit more of a background until you get to the third movie, which tells you the origins of how all of this craziness started. And so if you're into slasher movies, this movie would kind of fall into the category of slasher or horror movies. The movie's main character is named Dina. She's really, even though 1994, the first part is kind of like an ensemble cast a little bit, really it focuses on Dina and her brother, Josh. And she's in each of the three movies. And by the time you get to 1666, it's kind of, you understand why she was the main character and even why she was the one that kind of, spoiler alert, you know, ends up ending the curse. So because I decided to make it harder on myself and review all the three movies kind of together instead of standalone reviews, I apologize in advance if my thoughts kind of seem all over the place. I'm just kind, I'm just trying to kind of, get all my thoughts in order about all of the movies. So bear with me. So I'm going to start off um, by saying that these movies were really tightly connected. And because the writers were getting the stories from the books, it allowed them to never really lose sight of the storyline, which can be hard when you have three movies. And there's a lot of ground to cover and a lot of moving pieces, which is why I feel like my review of this whole trilogy will kind of be all over the place because there's a whole lot of ground to cover. But despite all of this, I think the writers did exceptionally well. Even though these stories take place in different decades, each of the characters from 1994, part one, are connected to the characters in 1978 and 1666. Though this is best displayed in 1666, as when Dina bleeds on Sarah Fear's gravesite, it takes her right back to 1666, and she's seeing history firsthand from Sarah Fear's perspective as if she's actually Sarah Fear. I didn't like this at first, but once things started to make sense, I thought the use of seeing what Sarah Fear went through in this lens was actually smart. Because before I really connected the dots, I kind of thought this part of the movie was kind of boring until the climax hit and we were finally getting somewhere and their use of using Sarah Fear's perspective to tell the story through Dina, it made more sense once, you know, the audience, me as the audience started to get some of those answers that we had been missing. I quickly picked up on the fact that Sarah Fear must be Dina's ancestor. So the fact that after three centuries, it took Dina being the one to break the curse, you know, it made sense. It had to be Sarah Fear's bloodline who stopped Solomon's bloodline from continuing the curse. And since I didn't really give any background on that, for those of you who plan on watching the movie, please skip over this part. You know, for those of you who really don't care to watch the movie, but you kind of just want to hear me rant and ramble about um, these movies, you can stick around. But pretty much how the curse begins is that, um, so in 1994, there's a character named Nick Good. He plays the cop. But back in 1666, um, Solomon Good, who is Nick's ancestor, created this curse by trading in the town of Shadyside in order to get power from the devil. So he kind of like made a trade. Here are all of these innocent people from this town. I'll give them over to you if I can cont- if I can maintain power and wealth because Solomon 
at the time, he was really broke. He wasn't wealthy at all. So he thought it was worth the risk. And so each of the first sons from his generation have to continue this curse in order for good things to keep happening to them and for the town, which is what they call Sunnyvale. So Shadyside is the one that's cursed. And for all of the curses and bad luck that Shadyside has to go through, Sunnyvale gets the opposite. So the worse off Shadyside is, the better Sunnyvale is. So really, Solomon is the um, reason for this curse. He's the reason why people are getting possessed. And Nick Good, the cop in 1994, and the, I guess, most current son of the bloodline is the one continuing on this curse. I hope that makes sense, but I say all of that to say that you know, he kind of blamed Sarah Fear. He let her take the credit for the curse instead of admitting that he did it. So she was hung as a result. And so the myth goes on to say that Sarah Fear was this witch and she's the reason why Shadyside is cursed. All the while, it was actually the good bloodline that was the reason for it. So it makes sense that in order to stop the the curse in 1994, it had to be someone from Sarah Fear's bloodline stopping the good bloodline. So once I picked up on that, it made sense for Dina to be the one to stop the curse and for her to figure out all the secrets that people in the past who attempted to stop the curse couldn't figure out. So once I made these connections, it made the movies even more enjoyable. I always felt something was off about Nick, aka the detective, the evil detective. But I still wasn't expecting him to be this evil. I wasn't expecting him to be the one continuing on this curse on Shadyside. Though I think Solomon played a better villain, Nick was still convincing. He was evil enough to continue the curse, but not as evil and deceptive as Solomon was. I mean, he was deceptive, but I feel like Solomon's deception was even worse to me because he pretended to be Sarah Fear's friend. He pretended to be her confidant. You know, he was protecting her in the beginning of the part three, only for it to come out that he was the reason that the town was cursed in the first place. And not only that, he allowed her to take the blame and she ends up dying as a result. So I feel like in that way, he was a lot worse than Nick, but I still think that Nick was an asshole. Though you can see the influence the Scream movies had on Fear Street, I'd argue that this trilogy is actually better than the Scream movies, which I love by the way, so that's saying a lot. To me, Fear Street is more gory and less corny and cliche, and it's also a little creepier than Scream ever was. I also love the soundscape and soundtrack that they chose for these movies. The soundscape made the movies feel more eerie and scary, and the soundtrack helped each decade of each part of the movie feel more authentic. I also think whoever did the movie makeup for this movie did an excellent job because the gore and the blood looked believable. I think most of the cast did a good job, but the standouts to me was the actress who played Dina and both actresses who played the teenage and adult versions of Siggy in the 1985 part of the series. I mean, I think it's 1978. Wow. The 1978 part of the um, movie series. I just feel like they brought a certain rawness and deep emotional pain to the role. And I feel like that took these movies from the typical slasher films to something with a little more depth. The ending was predictable, but I still enjoyed the way these movies ended. I do think I'm going to rewatch these movies now that I know how it ends so I can see if there are any subtle hints or moments that I missed because part of the reason why I enjoyed this trilogy so much is that there were little subtle hints that the characters would say in like the first part of the movie that ended up connecting by the time you get to 1666 and I felt like it was done in such a intricate way like I feel like these hints were perfectly placed so that by the time you got to the last part of the movie something clicks and you're like oh yeah they did mention this in 1994 and it's just it was cool watching all of these stories kind of come to a perfect end and a nice conclusion like I didn't feel like there was all this great build-up in the first parts of the movies I didn't feel like there was like a great build-up and then we got to the final part of the movie and it's like oh that's how it ends like I didn't feel like that and I was worried because I often when you have a big build-up like this and then you get to the final part of the story you're kind of let down because it's the conclusion isn't as satisfying but I felt like the conclusion was satisfying for these movies. There are talks about doing more parts of Fear Street which I would watch because I think this universe allows for many stories to be told. I'd like to see movies centered around some of the kids who became who became possessed by this curse. 
I'd like to see their origin stories. Like, I'd like to really see a movie centered around Ruby Lane because just some of the bits and pieces that they gave of her origin in these movies sounded really interesting. So I really would like to see how she got to where she was before she became possessed because her mom also plays, um, I won't say, I, yeah, you can say her mom plays like a vital part in Dina figuring out how to end this curse. So it would be interesting to get an origin story on Ruby Lane. But all in all, these movies will be a great addition to, you know, the slasher movies. I definitely recommend the Fear Street trilogy to those of you who have Netflix that are looking for something new to watch. And I hope that my, I, I can't even give say this was a proper review because I felt like it was all over the place, but I, I hope it was at least coherent. So my rating for 1994, aka part one, is a 7 out of 10. 1994 was a nice start and buildup of the movies. Though part one wasn't as good as the other two, it does the trick of making you want to watch the other two parts to see what happens. 1994 grabs your attention while 1978 and 1666 keeps you engaged. My rating for 1978 is 8 out of 10. To me, this part had the most engaging and interesting storyline and was less predictable. One of the most shocking plot twists happened in this part of the movie. And lastly, my rating for 1666 is also 7 out of 10. The first half was pretty dry and boring, but once the story picks up, this movie becomes more enjoyable and the story has a nice conclusion. I think out of all of the three movies based off of watching them only once, 1978 is my favorite out of the bunch because again, the storyline was more interesting and I love a good origin origin story and essentially 1978 is kind of an origin story you kind of see the beginnings of nick good become evil you get to see ziggy's dynamic with her sister and how she got to be how she became in 1994 you also get to see the beginnings of ziggy her sister and i think her name is alice you get to kind of see them slowly start to piece together what happened and how to fix the curse though they don't actually get to end the curse by Ziggy telling Dina that story, it helps her get the final pieces of what she needs to end the curse. So I feel like 1978 is the best out of the three. But that wraps up my thoughts about the Fear Street trilogy. Maybe once I watch it a second time, my review will be a little bit more coherent. It may not even be as bad as I think it is, but it's kind of like I regret not reviewing each movie as standalone reviews instead of trying to do all of them at once because there really is a lot of ground to cover but they are worth the watch so if you have some free time definitely check out fear street 1994 at least so moving on from my jumbled thoughts about the fear street trilogy you know i had to get into kanye west and his non-existent donda album so pretty much me along with the rest of the world thought that there was a good chance that donda would be dropping july 23rd now, I already know how Kanye is, I know how he operates, but unlike 2019 or even 2018 when he was supposed to drop Yandi, Donda seemed to have more of a rollout. He had a Beats commercial that starred Shakari Richardson, he was posting on social media, the label was promoting this album as if it was dropping the 23rd, he had a listening party where he rented out some stadium, I forgot what the actual stadium was, had a bunch of people charged like 150 for the tickets, like the snack prices were like a crazy amount as well. He had a whole rollout going on for this album. And so though I didn't listen to the listening party, a lot of people on my timeline were because there was a live stream through Apple Music to listen. And a lot of people were saying that the music that he was playing for this listening party seemed unfinished and that they were doubtful that the album was going to come out on time. Now that's not a shock because Kanye has done this before with Jesus is King. That didn't come out until noon of that Friday and I think he dropped that on Christmas Day. So I was thinking, not a surprise that it's not coming out on midnight, it'll probably come out at noon. Noon comes, no album. And then someone from Kanye's team, I forgot who it was, tweeted that the album was still being finished and that it will drop the next day. Saturday comes, still no album. Finally, it took, of all people, Justin LeBoy to tweet, confirming that the album had been delayed until August 6th. And you can bet that a bunch of Kanye fans were angry. Now, let me say this. I have a couple of artists, including Drake and Big Sean, that have teased their albums. I have never been a fan of an artist that pulls the stunts that Kanye does. 
And if I was a huge Kanye fan like that, I would probably be frustrated beyond belief. And there were a lot of Kanye fans that were doubtful to begin with that he was even going to really release this album because of how he has operated in the past. And they had every right to be doubtful because this album is nowhere in sight. I don't even know if August 6th is an actual for sure release date. With Kanye, you have to take what he says at face value, and when the album comes out, it comes out. That's how you have to be with Kanye. I did read rumors that he was supposed to be doing another listening party. I don't know if it already happened or if it was coming soon. I don't know how finished that the album sounded at that point. There are a lot of people who have theories that Kanye was never actually going to drop July 23rd, but just kind of wanted to gauge the public's interest. I really, when it comes to Kanye, I believe a lot of the wild theories because Kanye has a very wild personality and his rollouts are all over the place, if you could even call them rollouts. I do think that this album has a high chance of actually coming out this year versus 2019 when it was originally supposed to come out. And even in 2019, it was supposed to come out. The date that he said it was going to come out came and went. It never dropped and then he never really spoke about the album again. And so people assumed it was either scrapped or just delayed. I kind of think that around the time he was going to drop Donda originally, Taylor Swift had dropped her Lover album. And it se that seems to always be the case for Kanye because when he was going to drop Yandi in 2018, I think he had delayed it from its original date. Lil Wayne announced the Carter 5 for that date and he scrapped the album and it never came out. Then that's when he decided he no longer, he was just going to make um, gospel music. And so he reworked Yandi into a gospel album and completely changed everything about it which is why we never got new body which a lot of people and myself included wanted because nikki's verse was dope but we're probably never gonna get that song not even on donda which seems to be him going back to cursing in the music so it seems like the whole gospel thing didn't last for long either way like i told y'all last week i don't plan on listening to donda whenever it does drop but you know i had to talk about the messiness that was the Donda rollout for last week because that was in typical Kanye fashion. So in light of both Kanye and Drake coming out with albums soon that are highly anticipated and me just being bored on YouTube and revisiting a lot of the Kanye versus Drake versus Pusha T beef, I decided I wanted to bring a new segment onto my show that I may do from time to time, which is me revisiting beefs giving my theories, or really just discussing the root of where I think the beefs started from. Now, this was inspired by a lot of YouTubers that tend to kind of break down a lot of rap beefs where they give the history on 50 Cent versus Ja Rule, the, the history between Little Kim versus Foxy and things like that. And I said, you know what? Even though there are people that do this, I kind of want to bring my own twist into what seems to be like this YouTube genre of musical documentaries. Not really fully documentaries, but kind of, because they really interest me. And I may have listeners that may be interested in my unique perspective on these things. So I wanted to get into this Drake, Kanye, and Pusha T beef and actually give my own theory. Now, I don't know if other people have this theory. I'm not going to sit here and act like it's something that profound, but I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it or think about it in this way. Now I have talked about it, you know, vaguely with some friends and even my dad who is a Pusha T fan who, you know, paid attention to this beef when it occurred. But there are some of you listening right now who may not even give a shit about rap beef or you didn't really pay attention to when it was going on or you may be like me and you like listening to these types of things and you want to hear a unique perspective. So I decided that I might get into this from time to time. I won't do it on every episode, but every now and then I will. And I'll even allow you guys to vote on whose beef I should dissect next. So before I get into my actual theory, I'm going to get into the background of this beef. For those of you who don't know, and for those of you who just want to revisit the beef like I do. So Drake has never been shy about how big of an influence Kanye has been in his musical career and just naming Kanye as one of his idols. He also hasn't been shy about naming Pusha T as one of his favorite rappers back in the day. Of course, now he sings a different tune, but there are plenty of interviews where Drake is really honest and says that Pusha T is one of his favorite rappers and that Clips was one of his favorite groups. So we're gonna take it back to 2009. 
So in 2009, Drake released his So Far Gone mixtape. And as you know, So Far Gone pulled a lot of influence from Kanye's, I think it was his 2008 album, somewhere around that time. But anyway, So Far Gone pulls a lot of influence from Kanye's 808s and Heartbreak album. Now at this time when this album was released, 808s didn't really receive positive reviews. It wasn't widely accepted from Kanye's fan base or really the public. And I think a lot of this had to do with the fact that it was a lot different than previous albums and he was kind of riding on T-Pain's sound. And by that point, a lot of people were sick of autotune. T-Pain, I won't say he was washed because I don't think T-Pain ever lost his talent, but his popularity had peaked. He was on the decline. People were sick of autotune. And I think I play that played a lot into why people weren't that accepting of that album. However, there were a lot, there were a few people, I won't say a lot, there were a few people that really saw the beauty of this album and were inspired by it. And of the people that were inspired by it were Kid Cudi and Drake. And So Far Gone pulled a lot of its influence, a lot of its production, a lot of the themes, just really the sound of the 808s album. You can hear a lot of that in So Far Gone. And when artists like Drake and Kid Cudi put out these projects that were inspired by that album, at that point, it was more accepted. And sometimes when you introduce a sound, the first person to introduce a sound often gets killed for it. And then when the next person comes around a year or two later with that same sound, by then it's sometimes a little bit more accepted. And I really got that from watching this documentary on Netflix called This Is Pop, the T-Pain episode where they talked about autotune. And one of the people in the episode says that verbatim that, you know, auto T-Pain came out with autotune and people gave him a lot of shit for it. Fast forward today, you have guys like Future and Travis Scott running with that sound in their own unique ways. And it's a lot more acceptable. And T-Pain, you know, has now been able to come back and do his thing with, you know, little to no harassment. So that was the case for Drake and So Far Gone. It introduced this option for rappers that you don't always have to be a gangster rapper. You don't always have to be hard. You can be a little bit more vulnerable in the music. You can be a little more emotional. You can appeal more to women. And So Far Gone and Drake's just career since then has proven that. So I would, I want to say that that was the real beginning of Drake and Kanye. Fast forward a little bit to So Far Gone blowing up and Best I Ever Had being Drake's first real hit. And who directs the music video for it? Kanye. And that's the beginning of their working relationship. When it came time to work on the Thank Me Later debut album from Drake, Kanye did produce Find Your Love. Now I can say that this is when some of the issues and some of the jealousy begins here on Kanye's part. And I would have never picked up on this if Joe Budden hadn't said anything. Now on the Joe Budden podcast, I think it was during the height of the Kanye and Drake beef. He pointed out that the quality of sound on Find Your Love is not the greatest. The mixing is horrible. And it was not something I picked up on until he said it. And I went and re-listened to it. And I'm like, he's not wrong. The mixing is kind of bad. That when they remaster that album, they really need to remaster that song. Because it's like the beat, the production kind of swallows up Drake's vocals. It's a little bit louder than his voice. And Joe Budden felt like it was intentional. And I think... Now that we've seen their beef come to its peak and, and its height in 2018, I can't say that, that Joe Budden is wrong. I, I won't say that a whole lot, but I can't say that he's wrong with that. I do think that was intentional. And Kanye kind of admits it himself because he said in an interview years later that he had no problem working with Drake, but that when he blew up and he found success, the energy became different after that. It was like, on, in the Thank Me Later days and even the So Far Gone days, Drake was still a very new artist and he was probably very in awe of, awe of Kanye, much like I think any of us would be if we got to work with our musical idols on a project. But once Drake became more of a seasoned artist, he had hits of his own, he had success of his own, you know, he feels more confident in his skills, he knows what he wants to sound like, he knows what he wants to hear. And so now the nature of their working relationship is different because now Drake is an actual artist himself. And Kanye clearly didn't like that. Flash forward a little bit into 2011 when Kanye and Jay-Z dropped their joint album, Watch the Throne, 
which I really credit as the first real mainstream joint album. And I think it inspired um, music the rest of the 2010s and today where joint albums are more common. Back when Kanye and Jay-Z dropped Watch the Throne, joint albums like that were not as common. And Kanye admits that Drake kind of put the pressure on him and Jay. They felt like their backs were against the wall and that's what caused them to collaborate and drop a joint album because they knew it would make a lot of noise. A lot of people probably wanted a joint album from Jay-Z and Kanye and they gave the people what they wanted. Around this time in 2011, a lot of people also were pushing for a joint album between Drake and Wayne and a joint album between Drake and Rick Ross. So that makes a lot of sense for why Kanye and Jay rushed to drop Watch the Throne because they probably wanted to be credited as the first mainstream acts to collaborate on a whole album together and they got their, their wish they were. Now you got to remember too and I keep this in mind when you've had a run like Kanye and Jay where they're used to being the guys that other artists look to to shift the culture and they have these crazy runs where every time Dre would, I mean not Dre, Jay would drop every summer, he would run the summer and he would have hits upon hits and everybody wanted to be like Jay. When you go from having the world kind of in your palm and now you're forced to kind of give it up to a new guy, it's gotta be a blow to your ego. Now I think Jay was able to adjust eventually to this and, and Jay and Drake have their own history, you know, that I won't get into. I think it was a harder pill for Kanye to swallow, which then led to a whole lot of deep resentment and jealousy that was just brewing on the surface that would eventually spill over. But jealousy aside, we all know Kanye doesn't really write his own rhymes. He's always collaborated with other rappers and writers to help him pen his music. So, you know, jealousy aside, Kanye knew he still needed Drake because despite what you might think about Drake, despite the ghostwriting shit that came out, Drake is a talented writer, Kanye knows that. Which is why they continued to collaborate and when his The Life of Pablo album came out in, I wanna say 2016, Drake is credited as a writer on 30 Hours and I think on a couple of other tracks as well. Everything from that point seemed good aside from some shots, subtle shots going back and forth, which I just saw as comp competitive sparring on their parts. Everything seemed good. They were collaborating together. They were even working on a joint project together. Now I'll get into my thoughts about that joint project in a little bit, but I also want to point out before that, that when Kanye went on tour for his Life of Pablo album, we all know he was going on those crazy rants. Those rants included shots at Jay-Z and Beyonce and other people. But one of those rants included shots at Drake and DJ Khaled. At that point in time, DJ Khaled and Drake had released one of their many bangers together for free. And the radio absolutely loved that song. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. And Kanye had a problem with this and he let a room full of thousands of people know just how much he hated hearing that song. And then Drake went on to react to that in an interview where he also addressed Meek Mill and, and, and that beef saying that that rant seemed to come out of nowhere. They went from working on a joint project together to Kanye taking shots at him on stage. Now this is why I really think that that joint project was never really gonna see the point, the light of day. And this is why I think so. We're going back to Kanye's jealousy issue with Drake. I think Kanye used that joint project as a guise to figure out where Drake was going musically. He wanted to know the direction that Drake was in, the kind of music he was making, because at this point in time, which becomes more apparent later, but I think this was the point in time where Kanye was starting to realize that he was creatively tapped out. And Drake was very much on the opposite end of that. He was paying attention to what was going on in music. He's a young guy, so obviously he's in the thick of it. He's creating trends. He's shifting the culture. Drake knew what was hot and what wasn't. Kanye probably at that point point in time was starting to realize, realize that he doesn't really have that ear anymore. So by working closely with Drake, even though a joint project is supposed to sound like something new instead of just Drake or just Kanye, when you're working that closely with someone, you kind of know what kind of vibe they're in, you kind of know what kind of music they're listening to, what they like to hear, what's popping out here. And I think he used that joint project as a way to kind of look into Drake's camp and see what him and Forty were cooking up and seeing what Drake was in the mood for. So a joint project 
never surfaces, but when Drake puts out his More Life playlist in 2017, they do have a song on there called Glow, and they're still teasing the possibility that there's going to be a joint project between them. But 20, 2017 comes and goes, and there's no joint album that ever sees the light of day. Now we're getting to the really good part of it. We're at 2018. Now this is where I'm going to introduce Pusha T, though him and Drake were kind of beefing long before then. They already have their own separate issues, but by 2018, Drake's issues with Kanye began to bleed into his issues with Pusha T as well. Now, by this point in 2018, Kanye is in Wyoming recording new music, working with numerous artists, and one of the artists that he's working with is, of course, Drake. Now, at this point, Drake said on the shop with LeBron that him and Kanye were somewhat cool. So he invites Drake and Forty out to Wyoming and Forty gets there first and tells Drake, you know, things don't seem right here. Um, they're working on music, like whatever he told you was, a, it just doesn't seem right. And Drake, being naive still, goes, you know what, let's just go out there and see what's up. When Drake goes to Wyoming, Kanye pretty much makes it seem like he wants to be Quincy Jones of this era, and he wants to uplift his brothers and sisters and help them become their best self. But in order for him to help Drake with that, Drake has to be transparent about everything that's going on in his life. And Drake naively tells Kanye his personal business that he, you know, has a child, that he's having issues with the mother of his child. He gives him details surrounding his album, plays him March 14th and other tracks off of the album. So Kanye has all of this information, which is important for what eventually happens. Kanye also happens to play Drake some music, including Lift Yourself. Apparently he promised Drake that he could have Lift Yourself. Then one day the song comes out and he's talking a whole bunch of bullshit. You guessed it, Lift Yourself is that whoop dee scoop dee poop song, that ridiculous song that he put out. According to Drake, Kanye had promised him that beat and he felt like it was a passive aggressive move when Kanye not only didn't make do on his promise, but he also put the song him out himself and it was a bunch of nonsense that he was saying on the record. So at this point, Drake says that he starts to feel a shift, which is crazy to me because Kanye has been showing signs of his jealousy and his passive aggressiveness for years that even me as someone who's looking on from the outside in can see it. But you know, whatever, you gotta take the goggles off sometime. So now Drake fucked up because Kanye knows all this information, including his release date, which was supposed to be June 15th. Kanye screwed me over because I would have got Scorpion on my birthday if he wasn't being a jealous asshole, but whatever. I believe around early May, Kanye announces that he's going to do a seven song, seven album, seven week thing, and announces all these dates, Pusha T, Nas, Tiana Taylor, his own solo album, an album with Kid Cudi, all around June 15th. Now, before this beef really got crazy, I remember looking at those tweets going, well, Drake announced that he was coming in June 2018 in April. He had already started his Scorpion rollout. You know, he had put out God's plan. He put out Nice For What. If Kanye and Drake are supposed to be friends and they're both big artists, why would Kanye step all over his date like he seems to be doing? I thought that was odd. Then I start to see more promotion for Pusha T's Daytona album. Now let me backtrack a little bit. Like I said, Pusha T and Drake, and I'm sure those of you know, listening know this already too, they already have their own history outside of Kanye West. They've been trading disses between each other since I wanna say 2011. This has been going on for a while. Now the last time Drake had kind of dissed Pusha T was in 2017 on a track called Two Birds, One Stone and he addresses both Pusha T and Kid Cudi, who he was also beefing with at the time. Now, Pusha T didn't respond right away, and Infrared would have been the response to Two Birds, One Stone years later. So there was years between the response from Two Birds, One Stone and Infrared. But Pusha T also hadn't put out any music, so it made sense that he was responding this late. Now, Pusha T was originally set to put out one album, King Push. Kanye heard the album, decided he wanted to produce an entire album, for Pusha T himself. And they scrapped that album. This is where I feel like Kanye's shady plan began. Now at this point, I'm gonna tell you my theory before I go forward because it'll make more sense then. My theory is that Kanye got to a point in his jealousy where he knew none of his previous tactics were working 
and he set apart a new plan to sabotage Drake in his career. And I believe the success of God's plan in Nice for What tipped him over. He knew that by himself, he couldn't sabotage Drake or ruin his image. So he used Pusha T and his beef with Drake to his advantage to try and ruin Drake's career and his image and maybe dim his popularity a little, popularity a little bit. This makes sense to me. So when Kanye decides to produce Pusha T's full album, of course a conversation between them came up where he says, well, you still have to respond to Drake's Two Birds, One Stone. Let me produce a record for you. Because I think it's odd when you claim to be friends with somebody, but you help produce and facilitate a diss record at them. So I believe that conversation happened. And I also believe that when they created Infrared, Kanye told him that information that Drake spilled to him about what was going on in his life because they knew when Pusha T dropped Infrared, Drake was going to respond. So Kanye gave him kind of the battery that Pusha T needed to go at Drake. They knew he was going to respond to Infrared. And I, that, I think that's further proven by how they went about rolling out Daytona in the beginning. Before Daytona even dropped, I was hearing about this Infrared record. Pusha T and Good Music were playing it for people in the industry. People were talking about that record. They were also talking about what would Meek do, because they were shots at Drake. But they knew they, what they were doing. I believe someone in the industry probably told Drake's camp, hey, this Pusha T record is coming at your head. Be ready. And so Drake is calculated. And so he probably had heard the record. And because he knew exactly what to say in Duppy. So he had to have heard the record before it even really came out. And when Daytona officially came out that same day, Drake drops Duppy Freestyle. Why? Because he wants to take some of the attention away from Infrared. And it worked for a couple of hours. Everybody was talking about the Duppy Freestyle disc and how it was such a chess move that Drake would drop that the same day Pusha T dropped his album. But Pusha T, of course, wasn't tripping because he knew this was going to happen. In fact, I believe after Duppy Freestyle was probably recorded, someone went back to Pusha and told him, hey, Drake's responding. And this was all going to plan because, like I said, I believe the story of Adidon was already vaguely planned when they did Infrared. And Pusha T was just going to wait for any little thing Drake said in that record to use as an excuse to go at him as hard as he did on Story of Adidon, and Drake gave him one by mentioning his fiance's name. He didn't say anything crazy about the woman, he just said her name, and Pusha T used that to drop Story of Adidon. So after Duppy Freestyle, a couple of days after, Pusha drops Story of Adidon, one of the best hip-hop disses of all time, and this is coming from someone who's not a fan of Pusha and loves Drake. That was a moment. Not only was it a great diss record, but it was a great pop culture moment. But this is where Kanye's plan really starts to kick in. Because not only does Pusha T reveal some of the most shocking information to the public about Drake, he has a baby. The cover art that he used was strategic. This cover art features Drake in blackface. Now there are a couple of scandals that can get an artist of Drake's popularity out of here. And when you're talking about race, especially a man like Drake, who is of mixed race, that's a trigger. And Pusha T and Kanye knew that. Now, Pusha T admitted himself that he's not an internet baby, so I don't believe he actually found that picture himself. I believe someone on the good music team probably searched and found it. Not that it was that hard to find. It was on a public site. The photographer's site is not hidden. It was since taken down, of course. It wasn't hard to find, but Pusha T's not going to know where to look. So again... When I think about all of those moving pieces, when I think about the cover art that was chosen, when I think about the information that was spilled, it makes sense to me that Kanye, though Pusha T and Drake already had their own issues, Kanye used that to his advantage to cultivate this. And he thought that this would have ended in maybe fewer sales for Scorpion, which I doubt, the beginning of a decline for Drake in his career, because with Meek Mill, when Drake kind of whooped his ass, lyrically, that was a decline in Meek Mill's popularity. He was a walking L for a couple of years. I think Kanye thought that this would have been so devastating that the popularity that we saw in the beginning for Drake in 2018 would have declined and maybe the controversy would have overshadowed Scorpion and there wouldn't have been any impact from this album. 
because Kanye sent out, I believe Kanye set out to have an impact with those seven albums. I believe he wanted to change the conversation of having super long albums like Scorpion ended up being, which I believe Drake probably told him was going to be a double album. You know, it's more common to have very long albums now. I believe he wanted this project to change the culture. He wanted albums to go from being 20-something songs to 7 to 10 songs. And he wanted to be credited for that. And he also wanted to trample around Drake's date so he could overshadow him. But Kanye went wrong in a lot of ways. And his plan failed horribly. His plan went horribly wrong for a lot of reasons. His plan actually has the opposite effect of what he wanted to do. Because Drake was able to recover from this diss. And Scorpion, I think his first week sales, he does a billion streams. This album results in Drake being so angry, he goes back to record certain songs. Some of the biggest hits of his career, this album is bigger than any album he's ever dropped. Another way this plan failed is that Kanye underestimated Drake. Drake is very calculated. He knows how to operate. He knows how to keep up a good image and he knows how to he knows how to operate under crisis mode. The moment after he dropped Duppy Freestyle, he dropped I'm Upset to try to change the conversation and put it back towards his album. Then Pusha T drops the diss record. That doesn't work. He lays low for a few weeks. Then he drops the music video to a subpar song because I'm Upset is subpar. But the song starts to sound a lot better when the music video comes out because he creates a Degrassi reunion in the music video, a show that had a cult following, by the way. So yeah, people still remembered, oh, Drake has a baby and he was doing blackface and da 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 but oh my god, the Degrassi reunion. He knew what he was doing with that. And though we all saw through it, we still enjoyed the music video, at least I did. So he forgot how calculated Drake was. And that also plays into the fact that Drake went on to the shop and told his side of the story. He knew that Kanye was going to look like the bad guy. He knew that. The moment he told the world... Kanye, I told Kanye about my baby. I told him about my album. I gave him details. The moment Drake said that was the moment that this theory popped into my head. And I think a lot of people felt that way, which is why he did damage control and had Pusha T go on the Joe Budden podcast, which is funny to say this now, but at the time was a pretty popular podcast, as we know, especially for rap fans and rap music. So he has Pusha T go on there and create seeds of doubt within Drake's own team by telling Pusha T to say, hey, 40 told you to say that. So Pusha T goes on Joe Budden and goes, yeah, that information came from 40, not Kanye. Which doesn't make sense, and I don't think a whole lot of people believed that. It made a lot of sense that Con the information came from Kanye. Drake told Not a lot of people at this time knew that Drake had a baby. There were rumors, but there was no confirmations. So I assumed that only people in Drake's tight-knit camp and Sophie's tight-knit friend group knew about this child and its existence. Because at this time, Drake didn't even know the true paternity of the child. He said that that was what he was in the process of doing. So now Kanye and Pusha T are not only on the same label and good friends, but he's producing your whole album. And not once did a conversation come up about a guy you both have issues with and his secrets. I don't believe that. But to me, that was a show of guilt because to me, it seemed like damage control. But Drake is calculated and he knew what he was doing by going on the shop, a controlled environment where LeBron's his buddy and he's not going to ask him real, he's going to ask him candy coated questions and he's not going to um, doubt anything that Drake says in his story and he's going to make him feel better. He knew what he was doing by doing that. So I think Kanye underestimated how calculated Drake truly is. That's one reason that his plan failed. And another major reason is that these albums were not well executed. I think Kanye was so caught up in his jealousy and his plan to try to take some steam away from Drake's popularity. He didn't actually execute these albums the way they should have been. He didn't work on them hard enough and he rushed them. I think the moment he tweeted these albums are coming out was the first that any of those artists knew they had an album with Kanye. Tiana Taylor at that point hadn't put out music in years. I don't think she knew that Kanye wanted to produce an album for her until he tweeted it. Pusha T is a different story. They were working on that album for a while, which is why out of all of the albums that came out, that was the better album. So you can tell they were rushed. 
the the Nas album obviously gets killed, <laughs> which is why he went back and he regrouped and he put out that album with Hit Boy. But I think Kanye was so caught up in this great idea that he didn't execute them well. So not only did your attempt to sabotage Drake and the Scorpion album not work, but then your desire to shift the culture and kind of change the conversation about album lengths, that didn't really work either because the albums weren't well put together. Samples weren't cleared, they sound, the songs sounded unfinished, the albums didn't even come out on time, and you didn't even get the outcome that you wanted. Because you played your hand too early too. Once Drake saw those tweets, he probably said, you know what, June 15th is a no-go, let's drop the end of June. And he probably delayed it even later than that because he added songs after the Pusha T thing. So in the end, after, you know, the peak of this beef occurred and things died down, the only people that really benefited from this was Drake and Pusha, which makes sense. When rappers are involved in a heated beef where disses are flown left and right, it's really good exposure for them. Controversy sells. So anytime rappers are involved in beef, they're going to both benefit from it. Pusha T benefited from it because he also knew, knew what he was doing by putting a song like Infrared on his album. He knew it was going to draw more attention from people that maybe wouldn't have listened to his album either way. Infrared was the first song I listened to from Daytona until I went back and listened to a couple of other songs as I was putting like my radio show together and playing songs from the album. So he knew that. And it benefited Drake because more people tuned into Scorpion to hear his responses to the baby stuff. They knew he was going to address his child. Daytona went on to be Grammy nominated. Scorpion went on to win Grammys. They were both benefited. I saw Daytona on tons of best of the album lists. So Kanye's plan really backfired on him. And I think he started to realize that eventually. And that's when he waved the white flag and gave up. And in the end... If my theory is correct, Karma got Kanye because he ended up ruining his own image with the Trump shit. All while Drake sits back, laughs, continues to taunt Kanye. And also, one thing that really bothered Kanye was that Drake never really confirmed or denied any of those Kim rumors, which I think are bullshit. And I think Drake knows that, but he also knows by not confirming or denying it, it's bothering Kanye, which Kanye admitted. So now we flash forward back to 2021, and this is also what inspired me to do this. On the podcast there are rumors that kanye wants to drop when drake does and karen civil had said oh no they're good now they're friends now drake won't drop on the same day are they really friends i don't know if i believe that i think they're at a place where they'll no longer diss each other but i don't think they're friends i don't think you can really get over a lot of that because what kanye has for drake is just so deep-rooted and if these rumors are true and kanye wants to drop the same day as drake not a good choice because Drake is going to outsell him. If you compare their most recent album numbers, Drake has more. And I kind of think the anticipation for Certified Lover Boy is more than Donda. And I'm not saying there's not any anticipation for Donda, but there is. And I think that's part of the reason why Kanye did a fake out with saying, oh, I'm going to drop July 23rd and then didn't. I think Kanye wants to build that anticipation but I think it would be a dumb move on Kanye's part to drop the same day as Drake. And it would be kind of like 2018 all over again, where you're trying to, to um, stomp all over his rollout and his release. So that's my theory. I believe that to be true. I tried to be really organized by putting together a timeline for you. I hope it was coherent. And you guys should let me know on social media if you agree with my theory, if you think I'm bugging, or if you have your own unique theory to mine about why this beef really started, what the real root of Kanye and Drake's issues are. Those are just mine. Either way, I can't wait for Certified Lover Boy to drop. And I think that if Donda and Certified Lover Boy do drop on the same day, it'll be a great day for, you know, music listeners. So moving on from Drake and Kanye. Logic announced that Bobby Tarantino 3 is dropping this Friday. The cover art for this album doesn't seem to have as many Easter eggs like his usual cover art does, but maybe I'm missing some of them. Sometimes I go on YouTube or Google and I kind of see what other people have discovered with his album cover, so maybe I'll do that and see if I missed any. He also dropped another new song called Call Me, 
and I think it's the best single he's released so far from Bobby Tarantino 3. This song is a return to form and is on the same level of quality of no pressure. Even if I didn't already know that he played a snippet of the song last year, I would already be able to tell that it's older than the other singles he put out based off of the quality alone. The lyrics are tighter on this track versus the other singles he's released, and it's just a better song, period. The production has the same smooth and laid-back vibe as Indica Badu, and I really love Logic on these types of beats, and that song was included on Bobby Tarantino too, so it fits that vibe. Down to Earth's background vocals are a nice touch on this track as well. My favorite lines are, quote, And the demons we battle with make it harder to cope. Why you think we get addicted to alcohol and dope? Addiction's like a mud bath without a bar of soap. In other words, it's impossible to stay clean. The next song I want to talk about is Kiana Lede and Kehlani's new song called Your Best Friend. These two are my favorite R&B artists out right now, so the fact that they linked up for a song together and it was actually good is everything. Now, I'll be honest, the writing could have been better and less cliche, but their vocals, harmonies, and chemistry together makes up for that. Seriously, though, Kehlani and Kayana have some of the best background vocal stacking and harmonies in the game, so this song is like an orgasm. I also love the back and forth between them on the song. It makes the song feel real and conversational, and I love those types of records. Khalid also released a new song. It's his lead single from his upcoming album, and the song is called New Normal. The song is a light, breezy, laid-back R&B single with pop elements interwoven in the song. Khalid sounds good vocally, but the song isn't much different from his usual, which makes the song kind of boring. He hasn't put out any daring material since his debut album. He's always good for singles, but his albums are usually lacking. I feel like a major change for him would do him some good. The last song I want to talk about is Lil Nas X's new song from his upcoming album Montero. The song is called Industry Baby, which features Jack Harlow. And I'm going to be really honest, it's actually really dope. First of all, the horns are so hard. They really carry the song and give the song its edge. I also think the production brings out the best in both Nas and Jack Harlow. It amazes me how Lil Nas X continues to control the narratives in his life and put them in his music. And despite what people say or think of gimmicks, it works because again, he's in control of them and he's also creative. He's always good at creating really great melodies and hooks and Industry Baby is no different. Now y'all know I don't see anything special about Jack. I don't get the hype. However, his verse is actually the standout part of this song. He fits the track perfectly and his verse on Industry Baby is way better than his verse on the Killer remix. He just skates here. My favorite lines are quote, I didn't peak in high school, I'm still out here getting cuter. All these social networks and computers got these pussies walking around like they ain't losers. This line comes from Jack Harlow's verse and I really like it because it's kind of a flex. It's like, you know, while all the other people who hated on me in high school peaked, I'm still getting cuter with age every day. And also, I gotta agree that a lot of these trolls get a lot of their confidence from talking reckless on social media, but when you see them in person, they rarely ever have that same energy. So that wraps up my song review section of the podcast, but I wanted to get into a quick album review. So this week, I'm kind of going to give a short review of Young Blue's new album, Moon Boy, because there's not much to say here. I really planned on, you know, giving an in-depth review of his album, but I could barely even get through a full listen. I did, but I had to force myself. Most of this album was carried by its features, but much like DJ Khaled's most recent album, half of these artists featured aren't even really trying their best. The production is mostly repetitive, the songs sound uninspired, and the lyrics are pretty basic. The best songs on this album are pretty much the singles and Beautiful Lies by Kehlani. Beautiful Lies' production is led by a lone electric guitar and some, and some trap drums that eventually kick in after the latter part of Young Blue's first verse. Kehlani's verse is so good and damn is she a good writer. She has such a way with words and even though this verse isn't particularly deep. She always knows what to add to a song and her verse on Beautiful Lies is no different. Vocally, she sounds good too, but that's not a surprise. I, I can't tell you a track where Kehlani sounded off. She's a strong singer. Now, I'm not gonna say I went into this album expecting it to be great, but I was expecting to at least like half of the album based off of his single, so the album was kind of disappointing to me. 
The top tracks on Moonboy are Your Mind Still, Baddest, Way More Close, and Beautiful Eyes. Now, I didn't enjoy this album, but for those of you who are listening, if you have listened to this album and you think differently, definitely tell me why on social media and maybe I'll give it another chance. So we are halfway through the year. So of course I have to give my best rap verses of the year so far list. It's gonna be composed of 10 songs. And this was inspired by Complex's list. My dad and I were debating and picking apart the list and he said, hey, you should do your own list. And I was like, you're right. And I put a lot of time and energy into properly ranking this list the way I would like to do it. And anytime I create a top 10 list, I always pick it apart and rearrange it because I'm never exactly satisfied, but this is the best that I'm going to get it. So we're gonna start at number 10 with Little Baby's verse in Pride is the Devil. Now Lil Baby has come a long way since 2018 and is slowly becoming a better rapper. I still don't think that he should be calling himself this generation's version of Lil Wayne because he's not there yet. And I definitely don't think he's quite ready to surpass Drake and take his spot, but I do think he's getting better every year. And I think this is proven on Pride is the Devil with him holding his own on a track with a skilled lyricist like J. Cole. Many people have added his verse from Wants and Needs on their list, but I think that verse was pretty easy because Drake wasn't really trying his best on that record. Cole actually was really, really rapping on Pride is the Devil. A lot of people have added that verse to their list, but I think his verse on Pride is the Devil is the stronger verse out of the two. He slides in on this track with ease, and not only that, but he comes right in on pocket and stays there. This song is already one of the best songs off of the offseason, but Little Baby's verse adds something special to the track. The standout lines from his verse are, quote, break it down, weigh it up, now bag it up. Making five a month, that's regular. Nigga playing with us, that's a negative. At number nine, I have Drake's verse from Lemon Pepper Freestyle, which I already know my dad's gonna clown me for, but it's this verse is undeniable. His verse on this track is one of the standouts of the year so far, especially compared to some of the other verses Drake has put out since. Lemon Pepper Freestyle gives me timestamp energy, even though it's not a timestamp record. On those, he tends to really rap and give you bars, and he brings smooth, laid-back bars on this one. One thing Drake does well is giving introspection to his listeners, and that's a major part of why his Lemon Pepper verse stands out. Lines like, quote, Air Canada Center, nigga, when I die. Y'all gonna have to fly in and do your fake cry. First couple of rows, you gonna see the real guys, the ones that purchase their vehicles because they're trunk size, the ones that look at rappers like it's lunchtime. Watch on my wrist never showed me crunch time. And I feel like when Drake is introspective, it also forces the listener to be introspective as well. And when I first heard these lines, I'm like, hmm, you know, he's got a point. You know, when I die in the future, I know only the real people that cared about me are going to be there. And I think a lot of people relate. And that's also what makes Drake an enjoyable rapper to listen to. He has a way of saying things that a lot of people are too scared to say or they relate to and just don't say it. The standout lines from this verse are, quote, These days, fame is disconnected from excellence. Half the time, I gotta ask niggas what their profession is. Ushered a generation in, these are where my confessions live. And I love that Usher line. It was just really, really clever. And it's another reason why his verse is so great. At number eight, we have Jay-Z's verse for what it feels like. Now, many people place Jay's Sorry Not Sorry verse on their lists. But to me, his verse on that song sounded very uninspired. And to me, seemed like an easy verse to just add as a filler to top a rap verse list. However, his verse on what it feels like is passionate. It sounds like he put effort into it. And many lines in this verse are impactful. It also shows that Jay is still paying attention to the world around him despite his wealth. Yes, he still gives you some of the wealth talk, but he also talks about what it's like being black in America. And with our history coupled by what black people have been through the past couple of years, this is what makes this verse stand out amongst the others. The standout lines here are, quote, you know they hate when you become more than they expect. You let them crackers storm your capital, put their feet up on your desk, and yet you talking tough to me, I lost all my little respect. At number seven is Tyler, the Creator's second verse on the song Rise. What sticks out to me about this particular verse is Tyler's rhyme scheme, which you'll hear me talk about a lot. He puts such emphasis on certain words so that the listener feels each word, which makes the verse that much potent. On songs like Rise, Tyler is rapping with something to prove, and I think he proved it. 
Standout lines from this verse are, quote, they tried to boycott him, but he didn't dim. He started from the bottom and they went to fall off like he skipped autumn and spring summer winds. Look, you tell me I can't, I tell you I can. You tell me I can't, I do it again. At number six is 21 Savage's verse on my life. Though 21 tends to have a monotone type of flow, it actually worked in his favor on this track and he seems to have at least a little bit more energy here. He also showcases some vulnerability in his lines and it fits in well with the theme on the song. You can tell Cole brings out the best in a lot of rappers and 21 is no different. Standout lines from 21's verse are quote, I let the K go when Johnny died. Swinging that motherfucker side to side. We don't participate. Ain't with that squash and shit. All we believe in is homicide. I got a good heart so I send teddy bears every time we make they mamas cry. At number five, I have J.I.D. Options. What's not great about this verse? From J.I.D.'s animated tone, the way he writes the beat, his rhyme scheme, and the way he puts emphasis on certain words all make his verse on options stand out. He truly makes the song simple and plain. Standout lines are, quote, She got a lover, but I might get lucky. But you got me on a drain like a drunkie. Looking at the junk in your trunk like a junkie. At number four, I placed Conway's verse from Hood Blues. Now, I already said I liked Benny's verse the best because I just preferred his lines better. However, when it comes to technical skill, Conway's verse is the best and probably one of the better rap verses of the year. The way his voice just manages to grip the beat on this track is captivating, and he just has a way with words that make whatever he says keep your attention. His verse is just hard, and other than Cole, there aren't a whole lot of verses like this that have come out this year so far. I know this is probably going to be a shock to my dad because I'm not a big Rizalda fan overall. I really don't think they're for me, but I gotta admit, I do like that song he has with Method Man on his album. I like this verse from him, so I may give his From a King to a God album a chance because I have heard good things. The standout lines from his verse on Hood Blues are, quote, We was in the trenches, nigga. Four chicken wings and rice. The shooter 14 can't read or write, but he gonna squeeze his pipe. At number three, I have Nicki Minaj's verse from Seeing Green. Nicki has a multi-dimensional flow, and by that, because I, I kind of think I made that up, but by that I mean that there aren't many beats her flow can't ride or handle, and out of the three verses on Seeing Green, she has the best flow and fits the beat the best. Her verse is simple, but the bars are potent. Her emphasis in all of her lines cause you to really pay attention and feel each line. There are lethal lines like, quote, these bitches time tick-tocking better stick to dancing, which we know who that's aimed at. And also, quote, these bitches thirsty, I can see why they alcoholics. Those lines just cause you to make that face when you hear them. The standout lines from her verse are, quote, no one bitch could be my op. That shit offends me. It's corporate giants and machines that went against me. Because if you've paid attention to what Nicki Minaj has been telling people for the past couple of years is that there are a lot of labels and a lot of people in the industry that were praying and, facil and facilitating her downfall. And a lot of people in the industry, rappers included, have backed up a lot of those stories. So when she said that on the line, I felt it that much more because I know how true they are. At number two is Lil Wayne's verse from Seeing Green because how could I not put this verse on this list? There are many great things about this verse, but to me, Wayne's internal rhyme scheme throughout this entire verse is what makes it so good. The way he bends certain words to make others rhyme is dope too. He just went off and despite some questionable bars in the past, he proves he still got it on seeing green. Standout lines from this verse are, quote, don't put no K after that B-boy. Bad call, that's flag talk. Fuck around and knock your flag off, I had to. I wore a gap before a tattoo, I had to. As a matter of fact, I had to. No cap, I'm on them capsules. I done relapse, boo. Now at number one, we have J. Cole's verse from 95 South, specifically the second verse. I don't know if any of you predicted that J. Cole would make number one, but he has the best rap album of the year so far, so of course he had to be number one. Now, Cole's second verse on this track is the best verse of the year so far. His technical skill is just insane, and no other verse is touching this one to me. He uses several different rhyme schemes during this, which results in one of the best verses I've ever heard. Coupled with the beat, it's a hard verse, and it further proves that he's one of the greatest to ever do it, period.
Standout lines from this verse are, quote, my pen to the paper's lethal. I'm sending them straight to meet the, the nigga that made them peep the reaper, creeping on ya, the scent of failure reeking on ya, check your genitalia, pussy niggas bleeding on yourself. And I could tell I had to stop myself because I was starting to like really feel the flow of it and rap it. But there are so many standout lines on the second verse that as a whole, it just had to be number one here. So that is my top 10 list for the best rap verses of the year. And it's going to be interesting to see what ends up making the final cut when I do the wrap up of music this year to see if um, any of these songs stay on the list or if they get replaced with music that drops later this year because I'm anticipating that the fourth quarter of the year is going to be popping. It's going to be busy. I'm going to have my hands full. So I will definitely compare these lists to see if they stay the same or not. Let me know if you agree with my top 10 list. If any of the song if any of the verses, excuse me, that I included make your list, or if I'm completely bugging, but more importantly, let me know if my list was a lot better than Complex's. I'm interested to know. So before we reach the end of the episode, you know I have to get into the song of the week, and since I've been talking about him for most of the podcast, it's only right that I give him the song of the week this week, and because the song has been stuck in my head for days. The song of the week is Lord Knows by Drake, which features Rick Ross, one of the best things, aside from the bars on this record, is the beat just plays is nuts. The best thing about his production is always the drums and always the samples that he chooses, and Lord knows is no different. It is one of the best songs off of Take Care, so it's been stuck in my head the past couple of days. I just had to make it the song of the week. I'm sure you've heard it by now, so let this moment be an excuse for you to re-listen to the song if you haven't heard it in a while. have reached the end of the episode thank you for listening to me rant and ramble and discuss my theories in depth with you all please let me know what you thought about the new segment of me dissecting past beefs or even current ones because i had a lot of fun putting that together i think i'm even gonna let you guys vote on the next one that i do but i had a lot of fun but give me some feedback what you liked about it what you wish i included what could have been better i'm open to all feedback Now, if you enjoyed this episode, then please give Listen To Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast as a whole and want to support it further, please head to my Anchor page or my website, www.listentomespeak.com, and donate to my listeners' donation. Any amount will accepted and appreciated. And if you want to keep up with me on social media, you can head to my website. Again, that's www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all my social medias, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, which will be important when I start posting my polls again. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.